Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Posh Virtual Receptionists. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Brian Hockman, author of the book, The Listeners, A History of Wiretapping in the United States. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee, for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, we're going to depart a little bit from what our usual episode is. I would like you to read my listeners an excerpt from your book right up at the beginning, because I think it says a lot about the topic and has some surprises in store for us. Sure. Uh, My pleasure. I'm just going to begin with the beginning. I call this the ballad of D.C. Williams. D.C. Williams worked the trading desk at a small investment firm in Placerville, California, about 45 miles east of Sacramento. He spent his days doing what most everyone else in the financial sector does for a living. He studied trends and he made deals. He bought low and he sold high. He kept a close eye all the while on the regular movements of the market. Williams also had a knack for electronics and his specialized technical skills helped him to pick up a second job that involved wiretapping. For this job, Williams sometimes went by the names H. Franklin or D.C. Hannes. It depended on what sort of work was required. Over the span of a short few months, Williams gained notoriety across the state of California by devising a scheme that allowed him to do both jobs, trading stocks and tapping wires at the same time. It made him a wealthy man. The scheme was as effective as it was clever. Williams would tap into the communications of manufacturing firms and mining companies in Sacramento and nearby San Francisco, hoping to intercept news of a price quote, a patent application, or an impending sale, anything that a corporate entity would consider confidential. Williams would then relay the news to a syndicate of stockbrokers posted in locations as far flung as New York and Virginia. The brokers made financial moves based on the intercepted information, returning a cut of the profits to Placerville. The arrangement proved lucrative. Williams's correspondence, later produced as evidence in court, revealed that the members of his syndicate had made a small fortune while their wiretapping scam was up and running. But everything came crashing down when an anonymous tip put the authorities onto Williams's trail. After a brief investigation, detectives in Placerville arrested Williams in the act of tapping the corporate network. He was soon tried, convicted, and sent to prison under an obscure California state statute prohibiting the interception of electronic messages. Reporters covering the case pronounced it a, quote, new chapter in crime, a reminder that advances in communications almost always produce advances in eavesdropping. The year, and here's the twist of the story, was 1864. D.C. Williams was the first American ever jailed for tapping a wire. And as a reader, you got me good with that uh, intro. (laughs) Uh, It is easy, especially as a consumer of pop culture, to think of, you know, wiretapping as something that is under government purview and it's the surveillance state. But you make the point in the book that, you know, actually it's it's also plenty of non-state actors. Was that a surprise to you as well? Absolutely. I I came into this project somewhat by accident after stumbling on to the story of D.C. Williams, the battle of D.C. Williams, as I call it, uh, buried in the columns of a 19th century newspaper. I had no idea (laughs) that wiretapping went back that far. As a historian of technology, I should have known better. And 
I very quickly wanted to find out more, very quickly wanted to learn more about D.C. Williams, more about the history of wiretapping and uh, the age of the telegraph and the telephone and how the past informs the present. And without doing too much digging, I discovered that that story had never really been written uh, from the perspective of technological history, political history, and even legal history, which is focused uh, for the most part, uh, as many of your audience members will know, uh, on the evolution of uh, uh, kind of Supreme Court jurisprudence in Fourth Amendment law. There's a far messier story to uncover, and the book tries to tell that story. And it was as surprising to me uh, to uncover it as it uh, was to you in reading it. Yes, and to know that this is not a history of just, say, the past 60 years, this is 160 years. And not only that, but you make the point in the book, it seems like every generation, every era has its own scandal when it comes to wiretapping. When I say wiretapping, I think a lot of people will picture something broader, something that's probably better referred to as electronic surveillance. And that's not precisely what we mean when we say wiretapping and when you narrow down on the history of wiretapping. So I think it would be helpful for listeners if you could just give a little bit about what wiretapping is and what it isn't. So when Americans use the term wiretapping today, I think we tend to use it somewhat promiscuously to refer to all manner of electronic eavesdropping and electronic surveillance. So the joke, of course, is that your Amazon Alexa is a wiretap, when in actuality it isn't really. Amazon Alexa devices are known for passively listening to ambient noise, ambient conversation, but it's not technically a wiretap. Wiretapping in the legal sense of the term, in the technological sense of the term, refers specifically to the interception of electronic communications as they travel live from a sender to a receiver. Um, and this is a phenomenon, a practice that dates back to the origins of electronic communications. Um, the easiest way to think about it is to think about someone like D.C. Williams in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, literally cutting into the circuitry of the telegraph system and listening in on Morse code as it ticks away. That's how telegraph tapping worked in the 19th century, uh, how telephone tapping worked essentially in the 20th century with a couple of uh, notable exceptions, and all the way up until the 1980s with the birth of uh, fiber optic and digital communications. Uh, that's really how the story goes. Uh, we live in a much more messy world as the result of those digital communications, fiber optic networks, computers, uh, and all manner of electronic exchanges that we kind of engage in every day. But still, this definition of wiretapping holds, and I think it's very much at the forefront of our communications history, uh, and also the history of surveillance, electronic surveillance as used by law enforcement and uh, private entities as well. So one of the things you do very ably in the book is go through and give us a glimpse at what pop culture tells Americans or maybe reflects to Americans attitudes about wiretapping, electronic surveillance. Can you give us an example uh, from the book about, like, let's say, what did people in the 1920s believe about wiretapping? So to start, to answer your question, 
I should say that wiretapping has been a perennial point of public concern and also cultural fascination since the 19th century. Uh, we think of wiretapping as a kind of secret, shadowy uh, phenomenon, uh, usually carried out by agents of the state. But it turns out that that's a very recent, relatively recent, version of the story. In the 19th century, all the way up into the 1920s, really, wiretapping was associated with criminals, with the criminal element. And this is because in the 19th century, most wiretappers were con men, like D.C. Williams. These were individuals who had a knowledge of the telegraph system and who used America's growing dependence on electronic information for their own criminal benefit. So these were more like modern-day hackers. They yeah, were the hackers of their time. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way, a good analogy, uh, a good way of, of imagining them. Wiretapping is, in short, a dirty business conducted by crooks and criminals, certainly not by agents of the state. This is an important context for understanding how wiretapping comes into the aegis of state surveillance in the 1920s. The 1920s is the heyday of Prohibition-era bootlegging and uh, Prohibition-era wiretapping. And one argument that Americans lodged against the, Pro the Prohibition Bureau's pretty widespread use of electronic surveillance tactics to bring down bootlegging syndicates was to make the argument that wiretappers themselves were criminal. This wasn't an activity that upstanding agents of the law should be using. So, this is an important story for understanding some of the watershed legal decisions that are handed down in the 20s, most notably Olmstead v. United States, one of the landmark Fourth Amendment cases in the 20th century. Yes, privacy is an important part of the debate that the justices are having. Definitions of private property, whether electronic surveillance is, you know, constitutes a search or a seizure. I mean, these, these are important uh, debates that the justices are having in the Olmstead decision, but they're also having a debate alongside it about whether wiretapping is even ethical at all, whether it's actually the domain of the crooks and the conmen. Just to break in, many of my listeners probably heard about Olmstead in law school, but I know not all of them have gone to law school. Could you tell us a little bit about Olmstead, the case? Uh, this was 1928, I believe. So yes, 1928. But the story begins in 1925, uh, a couple years earlier. Roy Olmsted, known as the king of the bootleggers, ran one of the largest bootlegging syndicates in the Pacific Northwest, if not the entire country. And the Seattle Prohibition Bureau, in an attempt to root out corruption in uh, among city officials who have been bought off by Olmsted and also to bring down Olmsted himself, tapped Olmsted's telephones. Over the course of several months, one Prohibition wiretapper in particular, working with the Prohibition Bureau chief and his wife, who was a stenographer, tapped upwards of eight telephones in the service of bringing down the Olmsted syndicate. And even though wiretapping was illegal by Washington state law at the time, they used the fruits of their electronic eavesdropping operation as the basis for indicting Olmsted and 89 other associates. It was one of the largest cases in the history 
of prohibition. The case immediately becomes known as the case of the whispering wires, uh, resting as it did on the contents of these wiretaps that were transcribed by the Prohibition Bureau chief's wife, Clara Whitney is her name, and it immediately creates a legal firestorm. The question becomes whether it's constitutional for the government to intercept one's conversations held by telephone. And quite controversially, unexpectedly, given the logic of the time, uh, given what court watchers had prognosticated, uh, the court in a very narrow ruling deems wiretapping not a search or a seizure and therefore permissible under the Fourth and the Fifth Amendments of the Constitution. Most scholars of legal history regard this as one of the landmark decisions that the Supreme Court hands down in uh, the history of the Fourth Amendment, not just because of the majority's ruling, but also because the dissent to Olmstead contained uh, kind of seeds of legal thought that would become important in the privacy rights revolution of the 1960s. Notably, the uh, dissent to Olmstead, and here coming back to your question about the image of wiretapping as dirty and criminal. Notably, the argument against wiretapping on the part of dissent didn't just rest on legal theories. It also rested, as I discover and, and as I discovered and as I outline in the book, it also rested on a, a more nebulous uh, moral argument against wiretapping as the domain of crooks and criminals. Famously, Justice uh, Holmes in his uh, very short uh, but blistering dissent to the Olmstead ruling, deems wiretapping a dirty business. And he believed that uh, agents of the law who conducted it were dirty as well. And this kind of moral critique of wiretapping as a dirty business, this is a direct result of the popular public image of the wiretapper as a crook, made famous in the popular culture, the mass culture of the 19th century. And this rallying cry of wiretapping as a dirty business becomes important, a kind of refrain over the course of the 20th century as civil liberties factions on both the right and the left begin protesting wiretapping as a violation of civil liberties and also of civil rights as well. I definitely want to get back to the discussion of civil rights when it comes to this kind of wiretapping, I think, as everyone listening probably knows, uh, massive amounts of wiretapping of various civil rights figures occurred uh, in our history. But before we get there, I'd love to talk about the people who were doing their best to fight this idea that wiretapping was a dirty business. And I'm actually going to read a little bit myself here. I'm fascinated by this man, Harold Lipset. He, I believe, was a manufacturer of listening devices. Is that accurate? He was a private eye. Uh, a private Lipset eye. was a notorious private eye based in San Francisco. Uh, he was the so-called super snooper of the West right. Coast. And he uh, very smartly employed an electronics engineer named Ralph Birch, who manufactured over the course of Lipset's long and uh, storied and somewhat controversial career, really wide array, wide array, excuse me, of listening devices for Lipset to use in the field in his investigative practice. So he, yeah. Uh, Birch, he had- yeah, Birch was uh, bugging toothpicks and watches oh, we'll get there. and soap and other uh, 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 household devices in order for 
uh, Lipset to do his work. A quote of Lipset's that he he uses when he is trying to say, well, this is the benefit of having these recordings, as he says, I believe that the use of modern recordings is the greatest advance towards ascertaining the truth. These recordings are a faithful and true reproduction of what was said, including the tone of voice used. Unlike the testimony of an individual, a recording is not subject to bias, prejudice, accuracy, intelligence, reliability, memory, and interpretation. That's kind of an astounding claim (laughs) that we can see, you know, now looking back uh, and knowing what kinds of distortions can be applied to recordings. But, you know, this does seem to be something he genuinely believed. And there was another law enforcement or district attorney, I believe, Edward Silver, who said he, he compared it, being asked to do his job without the benefit of these kinds of recordings, being compelled to hunt lions with a pea shooter. These arguments in favor of law and order seem to be the arguments made to counter this idea that this is a dirty business. And is that what you found in your research? Those were the most successful arguments? Yes, and it's a very old argument that I find cropping up really in the 1910s and 1920s. The idea that wiretapping even if it's dirty, even if it's disreputable, even if it violates constitutional protections and guarantees, is essential to the work of modern law enforcement. The idea of the wiretap or the bug, the surveillance recording, as a kind of investigative panacea, we of course now know is a false one. But starting in the 1910s with a a very important private investigator named William Burns, uh, who later became the head of the uh, Bureau of Investigation, the entity that became the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the 30s, Burns and others argued that wiretapping and electronic surveillance were critical to their work. And this was an argument that all too often, I discovered, goes unquestioned. It doesn't go unchallenged, but it does very often and more often than not, win the day. And not to get too far away from this, but there's a tie-in to the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Harold Lipset, and the cover of your book. When I first saw the cover of your book, which for listeners, since this is not a visual medium, is uh, a bright blue with a an icon of a martini glass with an olive, on the cover uh, that says, again, the listeners, A History of Wiretapping United States, there's a connection actually to Harold Lipset. So why is there a martini on the cover of your book? So I love the cover of my book. I'm so thankful to the designers and to Harvard University Press for going this direction. It's so uh, eye-catching. It's also, I think, quite beautiful. Um, and it's In addition, and I think probably most importantly, this is why you're asking the question, an allusion to one of the central um, incidents discussed in its pages. In February of 1965, Lipset, Harold Lipset, the aforementioned super snooper, uh, appears on the floor of the Senate um, to testify about the unregulated and proliferating uh, rise of electronic surveillance equipment, uh, from wiretapping equipment to uh, miniature microphones and the like. Uh, And in order to 
demonstrate, shall we say, uh, or dramatize even better, uh, the capabilities of this new form of eavesdropping, he uh, made a little performance in which he, uh, uh, throughout his testimony, pretended to sip a dry martini uh, um, as he's going back and forth with these senators. And at the end of uh, his testimony, he played it back for all to hear, claiming that he had recorded everything going on in the Senate chambers uh, through a very small listening device uh, hidden in the olive in his martini. Um, The idea being, of course, that if you can bug your martini, uh, where can the average American hope to find safety, hope to find privacy or sanctuary? It turns out that that's not entirely true. Um, While the- Yeah, electronics don't famously do great in liquid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Water, gin, uh, it's gonna short out. Um, but even though um, the martini uh, uh, olive transmitter, as it came to be known, the pry martini rather than the dry martini, uh, wasn't uh, technologically feasible. Uh, and even though Lipset had, in fact, recorded his conversation from a bug planted in a flower pot, not in his martini glass, the image of the pry martini became a shorthand for... Um, Americans' loss of privacy in an age of uh, big government and technological advancement. And that myth of the bug martini drived a great deal, or drove rather, excuse me, um, drove uh, uh, a number of the uh, landmark privacy debates that happened uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, despite the fact that it wasn't actually a technological possibility. It was never used in the field or anything like that. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we return, I will be here speaking with Brian Hockman, author of The Listeners, A History of Wiretapping in the United States. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm here still speaking with Brian Hockman, author of The Listeners, A History of Wiretapping in the United States. And now that we've gotten to the 60s, I think it's time to come around again and discuss the kind of surveillance that a lot of counterculture figures, uh, civil rights activists, other kind of activists were under. I, before reading the book, would have made an assumption that people would start really being concerned about these issues in, say, the 50s, like maybe through the Red Scare, this is how government was given the, you know, more power to surveil people and and wiretap. But that isn't actually how it happened. Um, Really, pretty distressingly, it seems like Americans were against these arguments until they were shown or told these will be used against people trying to change the status quo, specifically minorities who are, are attempting to get their, their civil rights. So um, I'll open it up to you. Is, is that 
also how you read the situation. I do. What you're referring to is one of the most surprising stories that I uncover in the book. And it's a story that has really unsettled me. I had assumed, as you did, that wiretapping was always the province of the national security state. And that, in particular, the rise of Cold War anti-communism in the 1950s and uh, the, you know, following uh, September 11th, the rise of uh, post 9-11, the war on terrorism, were central drivers in uh, the history. But it turns out that it's not quite that simple. And the government, as a coherent surveillance state, call it, really arrives late to the game. Prior to 1968, which is a date that we can talk about in a little bit, prior to 1968, it's really a mess. And far more wires are being tapped on the part of private entities, say husbands trying to track down unfaithful spouses or corporations trying to spy on their competitors. Far more wires are being tapped on the part of those entities then say the government is is tapping to root out communists and subversives. So that's one story that was surprising to me. The other story is that most Americans didn't really like wiretapping. They thought, along with Justice Holmes, that it was a dirty business. And all of that begins to change in the late 1960s when the nation erupts into unrest as a result of police misconduct. And generally speaking, the rise of the law and order coalition in the 1960s won the day in convincing Americans that wiretapping was essential to policing America's streets. And this is a really important story. I think it suggests that wiretapping and the surveillance state more generally aren't merely the product of the policing of dissent or of subversion, say, of Cold War anti-communism, but instead of the rise of law and order. So there's an important politics of race uh, that goes into the normalization of wiretapping in uh, the 1960s. And this um, wiretapping, I'd say, remains normal today as an investigative technique. We don't quite question it in the use of routine criminal investigations uh, as a result of the triumph of this law and order way of thinking. One thing I also found interesting, and looking back, I guess it makes sense. Uh, so listeners, you may be aware of whether you live in a one-party or two-party consent state when it comes to recording anyone. Uh, And you may know that in different states, it may be legal to record someone without their knowledge, uh, whereas in other states, it is illegal. And wiretapping similarly had a really patchwork application across the states versus one federal standard. Brian, could you talk a little bit about how that came about? Obviously, this is a 160-year history uh, of wiretapping, but did you see trends when it came to the states that um, used wiretapping or allowed wiretapping and those that really did forbid it? It's hard to generalize given what a chaotic mess the story of state-level wiretap and electronic surveillance law is up until the federal standard comes into effect in 1968 with the passage of 
Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. It really runs the gamut. Some states, like California, which has the oldest law against wiretapping in the country, were very early to the game, banning wiretapping as early as 1862, as California did. And others, like Connecticut, followed suit in the late 19th century. Most of these laws, importantly, were not laws designed to protect consumer privacy, but instead laws designed to protect the property, the property rather, of communications companies, uh, the proprietary equipment of the telegraph industry, in short, uh, and the telephone industry following it. So California has a, a robust system. So does Connecticut. So does New York starting in the 1890s. It's, uh, their laws are revised again famously in um, the 1930s, late 1930s. Other states have more lax wiretapping laws, Illinois, Louisiana. There are permissive states, there are prohibitive states, but most states, it should be said, until the late 1960s had no laws whatsoever on the books, which really means that tracing this history from the perspective of Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence is somewhat insufficient. Uh, this is one of the surprising things that I found. It also means that the story looks quite different after 1968, when the federal standard emerges, when Title III is passed. This is when we can really start to talk about, I think, a monolithic surveillance state that is the result, as I've indicated, and as I argue in the book, of the rise of law and order politics rather than Cold War anti-communism. One of the primary source materials that you found and talk about in the book is fascinating in its own right. And this is The Eavesdroppers. This was, I'll, I'll let you tell it. What is The Eavesdroppers? So The Eavesdroppers is a landmark report, confusingly published by Rutgers University Press in 1959, co-authored by three researchers. Most famously, the most famous of them was Samuel Dash, who later made his name uh, as the chief counsel for the Senate Watergate Committee uh, in the 1970s. This was the product, uh, this report published in 1959, was the product of the state of Pennsylvania's efforts to design a wiretapping law. And they, the uh, Fund for the Republic and the state of Pennsylvania got together, they pulled some money and they hired Dash and an electronics engineer uh, expert from the University of Pennsylvania and also a legal historian to figure out what the real story of wiretapping is, to cut through the miasma of hearsay and myth and really show America what wiretapping really was in the 1950s. And one thing I found pretty astonishing was how complicit the telephone companies were when it came to allowing access to their customers' phone calls, I would say. It's definitely not in the telecom companies' interests for this to get out, and so they seem to have downplayed it a lot, but they seem to have really allowed quite a lot more than the normal consumer may have thought. So... Dash's study, The Eavesdroppers, had an outsized influence on national debate throughout the 1960s and actually into the 1970s as well. Really, the most important story that he told in the book was of this chaotic 
field, this conflicted field of state and federal wiretapping laws and how the chaos of that field had enabled all manner of wiretap abuse on the part of private citizens and also state and local law enforcement. This sets off uh, quite a controversy. One really important story that he uncovers in the book, Dash does, in his investigative research that doesn't really gain traction until much later in the 20th century is that he discovered that the phone companies, both regional providers and also Ma Bell, national providers, were in bed with law enforcement, so to speak. Ma Bell was Big Brother's handmaid, as the story goes, in uh, following Dash's uh, research. From the, 19, uh, the late uh, 1800s, uh, 1890s uh, in particular onward, phone companies had been supplying information and even leasing lines to law enforcement for a variety of purposes, uh, investigative purposes. This is, of course, a story that we worry about a great deal today, post-Edward Snowden, but it's a story that Dash uncovered. And interestingly, it doesn't really gain much traction until much later in the 20th century. Well, I actually wondered while reading, and I just want to see you know, if you think this may contribute to it, Early telephone users, I know the the elderly people in the rural area where I grew up still had memories of the party line, where it was not you directly making a phone call to another person, expecting that only you and the other person would ever know it had happened. But it was an open phone line, essentially, and anyone could sit in and listen to it, and there was an operator involved. So maybe they just didn't have that same expectation of privacy in early telephone use? Well, this, this is one argument, actually, that the phone companies, communications carriers, used in order to justify their complicity with law enforcement surveillance. The idea that the phone company or uh, telecommunications services, by definition, aren't private because not only uh, – not even in particular the the case of the party line, which is the most famous, but also because in its earliest guise, phone conversations, in their most early, in their earliest guise rather, phone conversations depended on the labor of human intermediaries. So you couldn't really consider conversations carried by telephone between one party to another private if it depended on an operator listening to the call for the first 30 to 90 seconds in order to ensure a stable connection. This was really the case, uh, the kind of telecommunications industry standard until uh, right around World War I. So this argument that privacy isn't intrinsic to the operations of electronic communications becomes one that the communications industry itself marshals in order to uh, justify its complicity with law enforcement. Well, Brian, if my listeners are interested in picking up the listeners, a history of wiretapping the United States, and they are reading it, what would you hope their main takeaway or a few of the takeaways from your book would be? That's a tough question. (laughs) I think there are a number of takeaways. The first is that wiretapping is very old which means that it is entirely coextensive electronic 
eavesdropping is, wiretapping is, with the rise of electronic communications, which I think changes our understanding of what privacy is and what communications are in our modern network society. Another, I think, important takeaway has to do with our sense, and I think we alluded to this a little bit earlier, that wiretapping is something that's secret, something that goes on uh, behind closed doors, something that goes on in the name of a coherent surveillance state in a place like Washington, where I live. Um, But that is something of an anachronism and that it took quite some time for wiretapping to arrive as the province of a coherent surveillance state. And before that, wiretapping isn't secret as much as it is public. Americans have been having these debates, sometimes uh, quite heated debates about wiretapping since the middle of the 19th century, and have had a real fascination with it, a cultural fascination with it as well. And the final takeaway and this alludes to this 1968 year as, as the big turning point in the story. The final takeaway is that wiretapping is very much an important law enforcement technique whose normalization is an important story in the rise of our modern carceral society. The 1968 law that I alluded to earlier, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. This is a law, Title III of which, legalizes wiretapping for law enforcement under judicial oversight. Uh, This is a law that for a historian like me, a historian of the 20th century, sets off bright red alarm bells. This is a law that most historians agree is a critical piece of the rise of the modern carceral complex It's a critical piece in the origins of mass incarceration, as Elizabeth Hinton and others have argued. Wiretapping is an important part of that story, and it's right there in the bill itself. Well, Brian, thank you again for coming on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people want to reach out and learn more from you, find your website, where should they go? My personal website is brianhockman.net. That's B-R-I-A-N. H-O-C-H-M-A-N.net. You can reach me uh, out to me on Twitter if you'd like, Brian underscore Hockman. And I'd be happy to take any questions and elaborate on anything we talked about here and more. Uh, and the book itself is available pretty much anywhere you can buy books. Well, thank you to Brian for coming on to talk about the listeners. And thank you to you for tuning in for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.